0: Good morning, morning. pleasure to be with you all today, to have this opportunity to open up God's word together. I'm going to go ahead and pray again for us briefly, and then we will look at God's word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by your spirit, the spirit of the eternal God, we pray that you would give us wisdom by your word. And that by the divine truth contained in your word, the spirit would bring about our willing, joyful obedience to your word. That we would stand in awe of our king. That we would tremble in his presence, given his power and glory. And that we would rejoice in all that he has done for us and is doing for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 49, verses 8 to 12. If you're using the Bible that we've provided, you'll find the passage on pages 42 and 43, I think. As always, I want to encourage you to turn to the passage so that you can follow along as I read it in a few moments, and I also want to encourage you to keep it open in front of you because we'll be looking often at the passage in our time together today. Uh, Two weeks ago, we considered the main point of chapters 48 and 49 as a whole, but I wanted to spend another week specifically considering Jacob's blessing on his son Judah, and the reason I want to do that is because of how crucial this passage is in the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. Uh, So this this passage, these verses, significantly advance the unfolding plan of redemption by shedding light on the identity of the individual who would crush the serpent and redeem God's people. So in the study of Scripture, there's a phrase that theologians and Bible teachers use called progressive revelation, a Progressive revelation broadly refers to the fact that God didn't disclose his plan of redemption all at once by telling us everything we needed to know all at once. Instead, as he speaks through Scripture, as Scripture unfolds, God's plan of redemption moves from broad and perhaps vague to specific and clear. I bring that up because while every passage in Scripture is part of that progressive revelation, some passages progress the story more than others. So think of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, where we learn that one of his descendants would sit on an eternal throne, or Isaiah's vision of the Messiah as a suffering servant in Isaiah 53 who dies for his people's sins and then rises again to share the spoils of his victory with them. These passages and others like them shed significant light. They bring significant clarity to the identity of the Messiah and how he would save his people. Jacob's blessing on Judah specifically is one of those passages. It adds a great deal of clarity to who this Messiah would be and I would say that when looked back on through the lens of Jesus Christ and all that we know about him, we'll find a depth and beauty to this passage that is worth meditating on. So this passage is a bit like being in a church building at night, dark out when the lights are off. You might Observe that there are stained glass windows, but they only appear to you as dark, opaque panes of glass that you can't see through, right? But when the sun rises in the morning and the rays of light hit those windows, they explode with color, with clarity, with meaning, with things that you just didn't realize were there. I think that's what it's like to look back at Jacob's blessing of Judah with the light of Christ shining through it. When you look at it on its own, it may seem like a dark pane of glass, but when it's held up to the light of Christ, we see amazing, multi-layered beauty, and I want to stand alongside you all this morning and allow us together to behold that beauty and see what it has to say to us. So I'm going to go ahead and read Genesis 49 verses 8 to 12 for us, and then we're going to consider two portraits of the coming Messiah that I think we see in this passage. Let me read it for us now. This is God's Word. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, And his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. What we learn in Genesis 49 verses 8 to 12 is that the hope of salvation for mankind centers on a king. And there are two portraits of this king that I want us to behold together. These two portraits will be my two points that we'll consider this morning. Portrait one, in these verses we see the king who saves. And portrait two, we see the king who conquers. Uh, so let's first behold the portrait of the king who saves. And a truly behold it, I think we have to understand why this passage is so significant and how it clarifies God's plan of redemption. We need to go back to Genesis 3.15 again, which we've done many times throughout Genesis. After Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the serpent for tempting them to sin, saying, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the woman will have an offspring and there will be enmity, opposition between the woman's offspring and the serpent and his offspring. So there will be people who align themselves with the serpent, surprisingly, who believe the serpent's lies and who reject God's purposes and who oppose the offspring of the woman. But this offspring of the woman will crush or bruise the serpent along with all those who align with the serpent. He himself will be bruised or wounded in this battle, but he will prevail and save God's people And from that point forward, we're looking for this coming offspring. And we've seen throughout Genesis how God chose Abraham and his descendants as the family through whom this offspring, this Messiah, would come. Now, as we trace that line of descent, we see that he would come from Abraham's son Isaac and then from Isaac's son Jacob. And now Jacob is blessing, as Jacob is blessing his 12 sons, we see that this offspring who will save his people will come from Judah. Notice in verse 8, you can look there with me, that out of all Jacob's sons, Judah will be a source of praise. He will be praised by his brothers, and that praise will come from his victory over his enemies. I want you to notice how similar the language here is to Genesis 3.15. Just as the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head and all who've aligned with him, so Judah's hand will be on the neck of his enemies. Later in the Old Testament, we'll see further predictions of this offspring saying that he'll crush the foreheads of Moab. Those, that was the nation that was one of Israel's enemies. These promises and these Images, crushing the head, hand on the neck, crushing the foreheads. These are all tied together. God's promised redemption will come through the seed of the woman. From the tribe of Judah will come an offspring who will save his people by crushing the serpent and the serpent's offspring. And as a result of that, his brothers will bow down to to him. If you've been tracking with our series in Genesis, you see how Judah has taken Joseph's place. We probably thought Joseph is clearly the chosen one because of all the things that he did right and because of how awesome he was in ruling Egypt and because of the fact that his brothers bowed down to him. But Joseph is just foreshadowing this Messiah, and we see through Jacob's blessing on Judah that it's Judah, in fact, and the tribe of Judah to whom all the other, nation, all the other tribes of Israel will bow down, and they will bow down to him because through him will be the one who conquers his enemies. His brothers will bow down to him. Not only that, he will be ferocious like a lion in verse 9. And then in verse 10, we see, look there with me, he will be a king. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The word for people there is nations. This is envisioning a king who does not just rule over Israel, but over all nations on earth. And from this point forward, the eyes of the nation of Israel were fixed on Judah. When would this king come? And who would he be? Fast forward about 800 years. We're going to speed scrub through 800 years of Old Testament history. And it appeared as though this king had come. From the tribe of Judah came one son of Jesse, King David. Think of David's reign as the king of Israel. David received praises from his brothers, often leading the people of Israel in praise as the author of numerous psalms which would have been written and sung together for the people of Israel to praise the living God. His brothers also bowed down to him and honored him because David's hand, broadly speaking, was on the neck of his enemies. He even seems to perfectly fulfill the hopes of the promised king as he literally crushes the head of who? Kids. Whose head does David crush? Bridget. Who? There's another one individual. What famous, in what famous battle does David crush the forehead of one of his enemies? Cooper. Goliath. Goliath. He slings the stone, stone sinks into Goliath's forehead, and Goliath collapses to the ground. If you are a faithful Israelite who is well aware of the scriptures, and you're waiting for a king who's going to come, who's going to crush the foreheads of Israel's enemies, you're like, boom! The Messiah's here! This is him! And during his reign, he won widespread victory over Israel's enemies. And yet, We know David wasn't the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 3 and here in Genesis 49. And we know that because God promised in 2 Samuel that one of David's descendants would be the king who would sit on an eternal throne. From David would come a king from whom the scepter would not depart. It would be that king who would crush the serpent and save his people from their enemies. It would be that king before whom his people would bow and sing his praises. It would be that king who would win the obedience of the nations. And that king has come in the person of Jesus Christ. Recall that Matthew traces for us Jesus' genealogy where we learn that Jesus is a descendant of Judah and of David. It's also why we should take note when at his birth, wise men come from the east looking to worship the newly born king of the Jews. Jesus is the promised king in the line of David, from the tribe of Judah who came to crush the serpent and all those who align with him, and in by doing so, save his people. But I want to draw your attention to one of the details from Jacob's blessing that sheds light on the manner in which he would save, that also tells us something glorious about King Jesus, where we learn in verse 11. You can look there with me. This king, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. This is an interesting image, right? A king whose robe or whose clothing is washed in wine and in the blood of grapes. He wears a robe or garments that appear as though they've been drenched in blood. I think there's a few different things going on in this image, each of which create a different portrait of our promised king. And as we look at this image of a king whose garments are washed in wine, with the light of the New Testament shining through it, I think we're supposed to see that King Jesus would would save his people by shedding his own blood. Consider the symbolic meaning Jesus gave to wine as he celebrated the Lord's Supper with his disciples, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this wine is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. That his blood would play a central role in his reign as king is then plainly seen in his crucifixion. When his blood was shed, and as he hung on the cross as a bloody sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins of all who would believe, a sign was affixed over his head that read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. King Jesus' royal robe is drenched first in his own blood. And what makes this so remarkable is that he shed his blood not by crushing his own enemies as predicted by Jacob. What does Paul say? But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died For us, his hand was not on the neck of his enemies when he first came. When he came to save, he came to shed his blood for his enemies that his enemies might become his friends. Or later in Colossians, Paul says, You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, you who were once enemies doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh, by his death. Friends, you and I were the seed of the serpent. You and I were King Jesus' enemies. We were enemies of God. We had rejected God's ways. We sought to be our own gods. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but God Being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, God made us alive together with King Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cleansing us with his blood. The king predicted by Jacob is a king who saves. His robe, his vestures are drenched in wine, drenched in the blood of his own sacrifice, which he shed for you and for me for the forgiveness of of sins rather than rightly judging us for our sins rather than placing his hand on our necks or crushing our foreheads as he would have been justified to do he instead was pierced so that his blood would run and not ours for our forgiveness friends king jesus came first to save all who would turn from their sins and trust in him And he stands before you today, risen from the dead, reigning at the right hand of God as the king who holds the scepter. Tribute has come to him, and it will not depart from him. And he rules over the nations. And he calls you to submit your life to his good and gracious rule. And the goodness and graciousness of his rule is symbolized by the royal robe he wears, drenched in his own blood. Friends, if you have any doubt about the goodness of God, consider that King Jesus came not to win obedience by putting people to the sword, but by himself being put to the sword. Consider how contrary that is to the rulers of this world, who by and large take power by force. It's been this way throughout the human history, right? Kings go in, conquer nations. What do you do to get the people to submit? Put them to the sword. You either kill them or threaten them with death. Think of nations conquering nations. Rulers don't win obedience through laying down their own lives. They force people to submit with the sword. Or to put it the way it's stated today, might makes right. Who holds the power? Whoever's strongest and will use it. Whoever has the most power gets to determine what everyone else believes and how they should live. Earthly kings rule by force. But King Jesus, the most powerful king in all creation, the one through whom all things were made, rules by sacrifice. He laid down his life on the cross to make his enemies his friends. Earthly kings sit at a distance from battle lines. They send other people to die for their kingdom. King Jesus rode to the battle lines alone and died for his enemies to make us citizens of his kingdom. In a room this size, I imagine that a number of you may be going through really hard things right now, things that might cause you to doubt God's goodness. I can't tell you that I know exactly what God is doing and all that you're facing, but I can tell you on good authority that you can trust that God is good and that he's working everything together in your life right now, even if you don't understand it or can't explain it, he is working everything together for your good, now and eternally. And I know that because God sent his son, King Jesus, into the world to die for you and me. That establishes now and forever the goodness of God for sinners like you and me. If you're tempted to doubt God's goodness, look. Look to the blood-stained robes of King Jesus and see in his death in your place the goodness of God proved for all time. I think there's something else we should see in Jesus' garments washed in the wine of his own blood. And that's something about the nature of his rule and what it means to follow him as your king. If Jesus was opposed to the point of shedding his own blood, we should also expect to be opposed following him. Think of how Jesus prepared his disciples for this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The road into Jesus' kingdom is stained by his blood. Opposition will come. Persecution will come. For some of you, it may have come already. But as fearful as that opposition may be, we can face it with confidence because the king who died for us is the same king who rose for us and is the same one who promised that all who trust in him would also one day rise to, ent- to everlasting life. If we are to enter Jesus' kingdom, we will in some sense walk that same path. First comes the cross, then comes the crown. We can take heart as we endure the cross because the king who saves is also the king who keeps all who trust in him. But we not only see in our passage a portrait of the king who saves, we also see a portrait of the king who conquers. In his death on the cross, Jesus not only died to save his people, but he also began his work of conquering Satan, the great serpent he came to crush. I want you to think again of Colossians 1. We, we looked at this two weeks ago, looking at this passage, where Paul says that in Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, Satan and all who are aligned with him, his minions, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The power of sin is the law. And the, our inability to keep the law because of our bondage to sin meant that Satan could wield the law against us To constantly accuse us and hold us hostage to shame and guilt and condemnation. And when he did outside of Christ and outside of faith in his saving work, it was effective because we were held bondage, held, held slavery, held enslaved to sin and to shame and guilt and condemnation. But by dying in our place to fulfill the law's demands, Jesus took Satan's greatest weapon, the law, away from him. He defanged the great serpent on the cross, triumphing over him and putting him to open shame. The foot of King Jesus began coming down on Satan's head on the cross. But it didn't finish coming down on the cross. There is a fuller judgment yet to come. When Jesus returns to finally conquer the serpent, and all who align themselves in opposition to God with him. And that's where we see that there are multiple horizons to the fulfillment of Jacob's blessing on Judah. We see it fulfilled in part in Jesus' first coming to save his people, and then we see it fulfilled in Jesus' second coming when he will come to fully conquer the serpent and bring judgment on all of the serpent's offspring. So kids, this is why when you read the Old Testament, as you get a little bit older and you get a little bit more familiar with the Old Testament, as you're reading through the Old Testament, you shouldn't get tripped up by prophecies of the Messiah, uh, prophecies of the Messiah being opposed and suffering for the sins of his people that seem to be at odds with prophecies of the Messiah reigning in power over all the earth. How on earth is this king gonna reign over all the earth and suffer and die for his people? It confused people who only had the Old Testament. That's why it says, uh, Peter says the prophets searched diligently trying to figure it out. They They can't figure out how these things are coming together. What wasn't clear in the Old Testament that becomes clear in the New Testament is that the Messiah, King Jesus, would come twice. In his first coming, he would be opposed and suffer to accomplish the salvation of his people. And in his second coming, he would conquer and crush the serpent and establish the fullness of his kingdom. And when he comes that second time to conquer, Jacob's blessing on Judah will be fulfilled yet again. We heard it read earlier in the service, John's awesome vision of the rider on the white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, And on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Jesus returns a second time, he is coming in judgment. He is coming to conquer. The only one who is worthy to open the scroll will rise up like the lion of the tribe of Judah and is coming to conquer Satan and all who followed Satan by rejecting God and choosing to live for themselves rather than choosing to repent and trust in him. And when that day comes, his hand will be on the neck of his enemies. He will crush and conquer the serpent. It's my non-Christian friend. This is why Christians want so badly for you to repent, for you to trust in Jesus. We're not trying to get control in your life. What we want is your eternal good, your eternal happiness, your eternal contentment, and it won't come from following your own heart in this life. That will only come by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason we want so badly for you to repent is because of what we see in Revelation and this prediction of Jacob about Judah's offspring. All of us have sinned against God, and because God is a perfect judge, he will not let our sin go unpunished. He has promised to cleanse the world of evil and all who do evil. In his mercy, he has made a way for us to be forgiven through through faith in Jesus. But if we fail to take God up on that offer, all that awaits is judgment. Judgment. Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is clear. We don't know when that day will come. It could be any day. It could be today. And we have to take him seriously at his word. All who have received him in faith will be forgiven and welcomed into his eternal kingdom. But all who face him on their own merits will suffer at his hands. They will suffer eternal judgment away from God's presence. And I hope what you take away from this passage from Revelation and from Jacob's prediction over Judah is that there is no hope for those who refuse to repent. I think sometimes people think foolishly, I think because we have a very small idea of God in our minds, I think some people foolishly think, you know what, when I see God, I'm going to tell him. I'm going to tell him what I think about how he ran the world. I'm going to tell him what I think about what happened in my life. You know, I'm going to give it to him hard and good. I'm going to tell him how angry I am with him. Friend, that won't happen. That will not happen. When Jesus comes in judgment, there is only one person who will be speaking, and it is the word of God. And that word will silence every mouth on earth. And then every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue will confess whether through genuine repentance or recognizing now the king has come, that Jesus Christ is the Lord Almighty to the glory of God the Father. Friends, my plea for you is to turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus for salvation. There's also instruction here for Christians. You'll often hear it said that the continuing presence of evil in the world is a reason for not believing in God, because if God existed, he would do something about it. So many different things we could say about that. The presence of evil in the world, if you believe objective evil exists, is evidence that God exists because if evil, objective evil exists and objective good exists. And if good and evil exist, they come from a God who has given a law by which we can define good and evil. Much more to be said on that. That's not my point here. The continuing presence of evil in the world, when people say God should do something about it and the fact that he hasn't means he doesn't exist, the Bible is crystal clear that the continuing presence of evil in the world is a sign of God's kindness. Kindness, because as much as we might not want to believe it, if God were to judge all who do evil, that means he would judge us. That means, yes, that terrible evil exists and horrendous things happen. But it also means God is giving you and I time to repent. God has appointed a day on which he will respond to evil and he will conquer it once and for all. If you sat there listening to the passage from Revelation and you were shocked, like, gosh, that sounds awful, blood, uh, birds, gorging, eating flesh, like what is going on here? I just want you to take a step back and consider the quantitative amount of horrendous evil that has happened in our world on massive scales and in individual lives. And now you tell me, how angry do you think God should be? I would say, pretty angry. I think that's why you get the graphic nature of the judgment that comes in Revelation because God is going to conquer evil and sin once and for all. And he will pour out judgment on it that is equal to, if not greater than, the evil that has been committed. And we need to take that seriously. And not only that, for Christians... That is a cause for praise. It's a cause for praise right now because we know that evil and all who do evil and who refuse to turn to God have an expiration date. Those who do evil will not always reign. Those who trample on others will be held accountable. The dark clouds will one day be pierced by the glorious king of light. King Jesus will finally conquer the serpent. And all who aligned with him against God. And when he does, he will bring us into his kingdom, which we also see in this passage is a kingdom marked by abundance. And we see that abundance foreshadowed also in Jacob's blessing. The garments stained with wine not only symbolize his saving work and his conquering of evil, trampling the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, but it also symbolizes the abundance we will experience in God's kingdom, to say that his garments are washed in wine is to say that in his kingdom, the finest of wine will be so plentiful that it could be used for the most common of purposes like washing clothes. I mean, I, I'm not going to talk about alcohol almost never in, in, in sermons, right? It's just not something I normally do. But I mean, I don't know how many of you are going to buy fine bottles of wine and just dumping them into your washing machine to wash your garments in them. I'm like, yeah, this is, this is like... Priceless stuff. I don't, I, don't, I don't need to pay any attention to how much this costs. It's just flowing everywhere in his kingdom. Go do your laundry in it. It's just used for common purposes. Jesus came to bring abundant blessings to God's people. What did he say in John's gospel? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The, the abundance he would one day bring as the king who washes his garments in wine is foreshadowed by his very first miracle in Cana where he turns water into wine. But we also see in Revelation a glorious prediction of the abundance of his kingdom. After the great judgment, after Jesus has crushed the serpent's head, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, those who put their obedience, their faith in Jesus. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. Judy, your brothers will praise you. They will bow down to you. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever, ever. Friends, that kingdom is coming. Our king reigns. In his blood-stained robes, he reigns. The lion of the tribe of Judah reigns. The one before whom all will bow and praise him reigns. And that kingdom that he has prepared for you and me is coming. In his kingdom, we will experience abundant blessings beyond anything we could ever imagine. No more sin. No more disease, sorrow, sadness, tears, or death the Lord will dwell with us and we will drink from the water of the river of life and we will worship and bow down to him all our days. And while we've begun doing that now, it's then that Jacob's blessing on Judah will finally and ultimately be fulfilled as we bow down to the lion of the tribe of Judah and praise him forever. And these abundant blessings are offer to you today if you would turn in faith to Jesus Christ let's pray Lord Jesus we thank you for being the type of king who lays down his life for his people by your death on the cross and by your spirit helping us to behold the cross and the empty tomb, help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We pray that you would come soon and very soon to conquer evil and to bring about this kingdom of abundance in your presence. Yet while you delay, we pray that you would be pleased to save many. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.